0: Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Great. So my name is Lorenza Eckard. I'm a journalist and presenter for an actuality program called Ingespraak on CakeNet, Monday nights at 8.30. I'm also a big fan of, of Fred and, and the work that he's done, the books that he's written. Um, this is not my first conversation with him, but I'm very excited to, to have this specific conversation about the fantastic book that he's written, The Gorilla and the Journalist, Exploring the Murderous Legacy of Jonas Savimbi. So I'm going to throw it over to Fred now to give us a bit of an introduction to, to who he is, to the listeners that might not know Fred and the work that he's done. And, and he can uh, yeah just tell us a bit more about himself.
1: I've been a foreign correspondent um, all my working life um, in Brussels, in Scotland, in London, in the Middle East, in India and Pakistan, and also in Southern Africa, um, I've written several books, um, particularly about Angola, um, but not only about Angola. I've written a couple of books about Winnie Mandela, and and I've actually written a book about the first Green Party in Britain, and I'm currently w- writing a book about an aid organisation in 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 Scotland, um, which is all about good people. Rather than about bad people, than I've tended to write about, about bad people in the past.
0: All right, Fred, I think that sets us up very nicely. I, I think uh, on that note, my, my first question would be that you've just uh, referred to the many books that you have written, um, and this is your second book uh, specifically uh, about Savimbi, about Jonas Savimbi. How does this one differ to, to the first one that you wrote, Jonas Savimbi, A Key to Africa?
1: In in the early parts, it doesn't differ a lot. It um, goes over some of the old ground covered in my original book, um, and that that was very sympathetic to Savimbi, um, and I'd been encouraged to write it by my friend um, Tito Chingunji, who was the um, foreign secretary of U- U- UNITA. Th- this book <laughs> develops the story because. I began to learn some very alarming facts about Savimbi, which um, were at variance with what I'd written before. Or not so much about, yes, they were at variance with what I'd written before, but these new facts were very alarming. And um, they were so serious that I realized I had to write about them and um, reveal them to um, the wider public.
0: Before we get to Savimbi, um, I'd, I'd like to just take a moment to talk about the title of the book, uh, "The Gorilla and the Journalist," and and on the cover uh, we see a picture of of two gorillas. Um, so so before we we do get to to Savimbi, tell us a bit about your relationship with Tito Chingunji. Who who was Tito, and and why did he leave such a such a mark not only on you as a journalist and as an individual, um, but also as an observer of of history in in Southern African politics at that time.
1: Well, Tito Tito Chingunji was a member of one of the founding families of the UNITA movement. Um, He was the son of Jonatau Chingunji, who jointly founded um, UNITA with Savimbi. And Tito was a very charming young man who rose rapidly through the ranks of UNITA. Um, I was with Tito and with UNITA when they were retreating in front of the Cubans and it looked as though, sorry, retreating in front of the Cubans in January 1976 and it looked as though they were going to be wiped out. And I got out on the last plane from their territory before they went on a long march into the interior to begin a new um, battle against the Cubans, um, sort of repeating what they'd done against the Portuguese in the past. And as I got onto the plane, um, Tito said, if we survive, maybe you'll write a book about us one day. And I I laughed and I never expected to see him again ever. And... um, Four years later, I was in Edinburgh in my home when I got I was asked to take a reverse charges call from Morocco. And on the end of the line, um, Tito said, Mr. Bridgeland, it's Tito and we've survived. And do you remember that promise you made to write a book about us? And I laughed because it, was, it hadn't, been a, hadn't been a serious promise. But anyway, I was intrigued. And I traveled to Morocco to see t and Savimbi, where they were at that time. And I began to get involved again um, with the reporting of what was happening. And I did three long treks of hundreds of miles with the guerrillas across Angola. So that 's how I met tito and and then I subsequently I met him many times and he became a very close friend of my family he used to he used to stay in my house in Edinburgh a lot and then when I moved to london he he stayed with us in London and then when I moved to Brussels, he spent a long time in Brussels and we we became very, very close
0: and, and obviously Tito is, is very close to Savimbi. Um, tell us a bit about. Those those times that you did link up with with Tito and Zvimbi and Unita in Angola back then, because you write quite beautifully about the the weeks on end that you spent um, with with Unita, with Savimbi with with Tito, some of the other gorillas in the bush. Um, I mean, the the various challenges that you experienced during that time. Um, I think that that makes up for for fascinating reading.
1: Well. I told Tito look if I'm going to write this book I'm going to have to travel with the guerrillas and see what they're doing and um I I began I began traveling to Angola and linking up with um, various commanders of the guerrilla army and then walking hundreds of miles northwards through the bush in southeastern Angola and really it was It it, it was the most exhilarating experience because the area, um, Angola was, um, the area UNITA was operating from was one of the great wildlife, um, unfenced wildlife reserves of Africa, so there were huge herds of elephant and buffalo and zebra and giraffe, um, and sable antelope. Um, it was, it, it was, it was, it was just beautiful. And you know, it was an area where there were no tarred roads, there were no towns in the conventional sense. And I was beginning to see areas of Angola which many people had not had the privilege of seeing um, because it was, it was so wild and remote. And and so I, each time I went, I Teamed up with a different guerrilla commander, I would march with them through Angola to their targets, and then and then be there as they attacked the um, towns held by the MPLA.
0: As a journalist, it, that 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 was very interesting to me. The way that you were able to report and and the many days and weeks that you were allowed to spend uh, with with this group. That's something that I don't think uh, would would be possible today in a modern newsroom. Um, And and in a way, the book is sort of a throwback to, I I wouldn't say the glory days of of foreign reporting or war reporting, because I don't think that you you, um, try to romanticize that in any way in the book. Um, But but in a way, it does does sort of talk to an era, a bygone era of of foreign reporting.
1: I I think that's right. And I think think the crucial example of the era of what you did describe as bygone reporting was how i discovered the south Africa, the secret south african military invasion of angola these days i wouldn't have been able to discover that invasion because there's such instant communication between reporters in the field and their foreign editors and I was only able to discover the South African invasion of Angola because I flew, in, I flew into Angola, um, realized the South Africans had invaded. And then I spent three weeks wandering around Southern Angola, managing to get a lift into the heart of the South African operation in Rundu. Um, so for those three weeks, I was completely out of touch with my um, foreign desk and my foreign editor. Now, these days, if I arrived, the moment I walked down the steps of the plane and set foot on Angola, um, I would be getting a call on my cell phone from the foreign editor, and they would say, Fred, when are you going to start filing your first story? And 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 they'd be continually pestering me. But I need, I needed those three weeks to pin down the story properly, and it was very exciting. I mean... I, I was having the time of my life. Um, it was fascinating. Um, but I was free from any control from my um, foreign desk. And that today is impossible.
0: Fred, talk to us a bit about your initial uh, interactions then with Savimbi. Um, what kind of impression did he make on you initially when you when you he, spoke to him or you met him the first time?
1: He made a great he made a great impression um, it, it, it was quite exciting. I mean you know he was he was forty one at the time. He was very fit he He oozed charm, he was charismatic, he was warm, um, he had a legendary reputation among the people of central and southern Africa. Um, he was the only liberation leader to base himself inside. Angola, when they fought the Portuguese, um, it was just—it was just very, very, very romantic. I mean, he and and he was—he was a brilliant public speaker. I mean, really brilliant. I mean, every everybody who saw Savimbi, um addressing a crowd. Um, Confirmed that what a brilliant oratory was. Um, he knew classical Ovenbundu, the local language. He knew all the proverbs. He was a man of immense energy. He was a very clever man, um, an incredible intellectual. He spoke many languages. He spoke fluent English, for example, although he'd never lived in an English speaking country. And he was just very interesting to talk to. I mean, I. I had conversations with him which lasted for hours um, and I was just very impressed by him.
0: The, the impression that I got in the book as well was that Savimbi was very keenly aware of where Angola was um, in in that post-colonial era um, and that that he was sort of, not just a, a keen observer of, of what Angolans perhaps wanted, what their aspirations were, um, but that you know later, as we found out, that he sort of abused um, that that aspiration that Angolans had for for freedom, independence, um, and for for good governance, which were promises that were made to to them. But you also sort of write about Savimbi's um, exposure to to Che Guevara and various other um, communist leaders. What kind of impact did that make on him as a, as, a, as a freedom fighter?
1: I think he was very impressed by his me- meeting with Guevara. It was quite short, you I mean, he had, had one meeting with him in Tanzania, and another meeting w- with him in Algeria, when Guevara had been trying to sort of repeat the Cuban revolution in the Republic of the Congo. But um, G- Guevara obviously liked Savimbi, and he encouraged him, to go into Angola, fight his battle against the Portuguese from within Angola, not from outside. And to to live with the people—that that's exactly what Savimbi did. I mean, Savim Savimbi fought the Portuguese from inside Angola, and none of the other liberation movements did that.
0: I don't want to give too much away, um, but there's a section in the book. You you meet Tito years after you 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 wrote your first book um where he sort of tells you that perhaps you were under um perhaps not the the, the correct impression regarding uh Savimbi's role and and how he was conducting himself as leader of, of UNITA um tell us a bit about that meeting that you had with with Tito because it's it, it's a lot of emotional language that you use in the book um and it, and it is quite heartbreaking
1: It it was a very difficult thing. What happened was that I I had published my first book about um, Sevimli, which I'd written in close cooperation with Tito. And one day I was in my office. I was in London at the time. I was a diplomatic editor of my paper. And um, I got a call from Washington because Tito was based in Washington for UNITA as foreign secretary, liaising with the um American government and with the CIA and um, he said Fred I need to talk to you I said well go ahead he said no I don't <laughs> I can't talk to you on the phone I said well where do you want me to talk to He said I'd like you to come to Washington I said Tito I'm, I'm not in the habit of just did Tito, Tito tell me what it's about and he said no I can't tell you I said Tito I'm I'm not in the habit of just hopping on planes um um, and crossing the Atlantic for casual fr- chats with my friends, he said, "You must come. You must come." And I said, "What's this about?" He said, he said I, c- "I can't. I can't tell you." I said, "Is this a matter of life or death?" And he said, "Yes." I said, "Okay. I'm on my way." And then I met him in a hotel room in Central Washington, and he he began to describe to me some of the awful things, really evil things, that Savimbi was doing to his own people and to Tito's own family and how he was blackmailing Tito. Um, He had his whole extended family in Jamba, the UNITA headquarters, and he was holding them as hostages against Tito, continuing to do a brilliant diplomatic job in Washington. Uh, and so Tito was sort of trapped in a moral dilemma I think of as being of Kafkaesque proportions. Um, it's a moral d- dilemma that was created by Savimbi's threats to the people that Tito loved. And so Tito described a lot of these atrocities to me, and he described to me how Savimbi had killed his own parents, Tito's own parents, um, who had questioned Savimbi's morals because the the book, and I'm not giving anything away here, I mean, Savimbi had innumerable wives and concubines who he stole from other people, and he was... He was um, Savimbi's children were littered across southern Africa uh, southern angola um so, so he, and 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 some of these women who he um took as concubines Savimbi later murdered and and, and one of the stories Tito was telling me was this infamous witch burning in sept- September 1983 when Savimbi actually burned several women and their children on a public bonfire in Jamba um, accusing them of being witches but in fact most of them were women who had refused to sleep with Savinbi. I mean this was horrific horrific stuff um and um I said to, I said to Tito I said <laughs> look at this <laughs> um I don't I don't want to tell you one of my best jokes because you might publish it. I said I said you 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 you're telling me what I what what I've written in the first book that it's my first novel. Um and um I said, what do I do with this now? What am I gonna have um because I'm gonna have to do something? And he said, Well look at first um just hold on. And don't do anything at the moment. But I will give you a signal when the time is right to write about it. Or, and this this put a huge responsibility on my shoulders, or you will know the time has come to write about it. So I flew back from Washington um, knowing that at some point I was going to have to write about... Savimbi, the mass murderer of his own people, destroying his own movement, um, and that this man, this man who I had admired, I liked. I mean, I looked, I liked Savimbi, but clearly, clearly, he was beneath all this charm. He was, he was just evil, and that he had no um, internal moral control. And then I got back, I got back to London and was, was thinking about things and how do I, how do I begin to um, carry this forward when people began ringing me and said, look, we're very worried about Tito at the moment because he's, he's gone back to Jamba against all our advice and he hasn't come back to do his job in Washington. Um and he's got he's got several very important appointments, particularly with um members of black churches who Tito had been um, working with. And the people who phoned they said, Would would you be willing to go to Jamba um and see if Tito's all right? Because we we we, we think Savimbi is we we think that you're probably the only person who Savimbi might be prepared to listen to i said okay i'll i'll go um and um i went and i i was put on i was put on a kind of trial in the um in the the big meeting hut called a jungle in um in jamba and Savimbi, Savimbi made me sit down next to him, and then the the whole Politburo was in front of me, including Tito. And um, Savimbi welcomed me. He was very, he was he was the traditional, um, warm Savimbi who I had known. And he said, no, "Just tell us, tell us why you've come." I said, "Well, you know, I've I've come because people are worried in the outside world." Why Tito hasn't returned to his um, job in Washington, and they asked me to come here, and I said I, I'm, I'm, I was prepared to come because you know Tito had helped me write the um, the original Savimbi book, and I said in in the court in the course of writing that I'd come to regard him as my brother. Oh, that was that 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 was a big error. Savimbi, Savimbi exploded. And he, he, he just shouted at me and insulted me for about an hour. And um, he said, and he waved his arm around the Polypura, and he said, "You're, you're not, you're not Tito's brother. These are Tito's brothers, the people who have been fighting colonialism and white rule." for years and years and you and you now you come here and you insult me and you are he called me a racist and they're, and, they're, and I, I think the worst insult was that he, he he said that he said your book may be very thick but in the history of our movement it is a very thin thing hmm. and and so, and so anyway these these insults were poured at me um Fred, I, I, I
0: guess it's a is it a, is it an unfair question to ask you uh, before that meeting as a journalist did you did you have no suspicions of this sort of other side that that Savimbi had during your earlier dealings with him
1: no none, none whatsoever i It came as a complete shock and surprise and and it's true of most people um I mean Leon, Leon Dash, who um had a the Washington Post um um correspondent who um did two huge journeys with um UNITA across Angola, he said he had he had no suspicions at all about um, this these aspects of Savindi. Um he, he managed to cover things up um brilliantly. The moment I realised that there was this other side of Savimbi which had not been seen before, I re- I resolved to write about it. I, from that moment, I said, right, this is this has got to be written about. This is I I, I, I didn't I didn't see it as a new story. I, I I saw it as the development of a story. I mean that that I mean that's one of the prices of journalism. You know, you could, you can do so much that is superficial. I mean, and I. I I, I I consider most most of the most of the journalism we do. I think it's just wallpaper, but I mean, if if, if you're really going to write something in depth, you've got to stick with the story, because the because there are hidden depths to stories which um, you can only get at if you stick with the story for a long time, and that's that's what I think I did. Suddenly, I was um, confronted with new truths. And i wrote about them and as a consequence of them i actually had death threats and mm. and my partner sue armstrong she she had threats from Savimbi's thugs to to mutilate her um so there were co- there were consequences of of writing um the 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 develop the develop what i call the developing story not the new story but the developing story
0: certainly Fred, I just as a last uh, question would like to, to ask you about the experience of, of, of being a European, writing about African um, issues and politics, especially in that era, because there's a section in the book where you talk about the, the sort of purchase of a Eurocentric package deal about any group in Africa. And then you write, nothing on the continent is as straightforward, uh, close range as it seems from afar. Do you think that that still holds true?
1: I think it's absolutely true. I mean, look look at the continent I live on. I mean, you know, until recently we were all pinky greys. I never described myself as a white. I describe myself as a pinky grey. Um, we were all pinky greys. You couldn't um, say that was there was some sort of uniform culture in Europe um, because everybody was pinky grey. We, we were a whole range of cultures, a whole range of languages, and the same was true true of Angola. I mean, Angola had you know, it had 100 distinct ethnic groups in Angola, 46 different languages. It was unique in itself, and it deserved to be considered as unique in itself rather than in part of as part of some overall African image.
0: Fred, uh, thank you, thank you so much, and, and thank you for for updating the story and and writing this book um, about the very important of angola's history i'm certainly very thankful to you thanks for joining us for this week's episode of pagecast we have an incredible lineup of author interviews so head over to our facebook and instagram and follow jonathan ball publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes thanks for your interest in the story behind the story happy reading from everyone at pagecast